You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. What's up, y'all? It's episode 119 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. And uh, this is an adrenaline-fueled episode where we discuss miniatures and painting and hobby and uh, things of that nature. We are brought to you by our Patreon sponsors, who are all individually extremely um, potent sexually, and they're all very attractive. So I just thought you should know that. Anybody that's not on our Patreon role is, like, super ugly. Like a, like a 1 out of 10. Anyway, we're also brought to you by GameMat.eu, and they've got all sorts of pre-painted terrain and gaming mats of the old design, the 6x4. They also have 4x4. They also have 3x3, and they've got all of the weird new dimensions for the minimum size of game mats for GW games. So they there's basically nothing you can't find that they don't have as far as game mats, and uh, they have a wide selection of terrain as well. And they also have double-sided mats, so if you're just going to do, you know, you've got the budget to buy just one mat, why not buy a double-sided mat, and then you'll get double the use out of it. That seems to make sense. You should use code EVENT10 to get 10% off the order, and that proves to them that we have people that listen, and they will continue to support the show. So... That's how that works, in case you were not aware. So, what are we talking about tonight? I continue my glorious interview with Alan Merritt, the former everything at Games Workshop at one time or another. And tonight, we have such topics to cover, such as... Why did it take so long for Sisters of Battle to get plastic models when they already had a full metal army? We also discuss the origin of Finecast and what they thought of it, and why did they implement Finecast, by the way. We also discuss the birth of the Rhino and the Land Raider as models, and it's kind of funny that there is manufacturing reasons for their designs the way they originally were, so you might want to hear that. And we also talk at length about their implementation of plastic injection molding and how that differs from metal casting, which of course was their bread and butter at the time, and all the trials and tribulations and different techniques they tried and all that. Also, it's super, super interesting to hear how they actually make the plastic molds. Because if you remember, the metal molds are rubber that gets pressed really hard to the point of a solid state before it gets spun and liquid metal goes into it and casts the miniatures. Well, the plastic injection molding, it takes extreme temperature and extreme pressure, I mean, and uh, it's a completely different beast. You don't use rubber molds for that. And he describes the painstaking process of actually making the steel molds for the plastic injection. And he also describes, and this is something I did not know necessarily, that the differences the differences from their standpoint in the cost and the difficulty and the speed of manufacturing with plastic injection or metal spin casting. And to me, I just find this absolutely fascinating. So I've really, really enjoyed my discussions with him. And guess what? I have... I. I hope I'm not turning any of you off with this stuff, because I personally, a lot of times, when I'm listening to podcasts and things, 
I don't always like a ton of interviews, and I apologize for all of this interview stuff, but we will have enough information for a third episode of that being the main topic. So I hope you're not sick of that, but Ellen Merritt was so nice, and we talked for three hours, and we have so much more to discuss. In the third episode of next week, we are going to discuss the age-old question, why are there no female space marines, among other things, and that gets very, very interesting. We also, just off the top of my head, next week are going to be talking about the worst-selling miniature ranges, such as like which army sells the worst, and you know why were the squats squatted, and all of that stuff. We we touch on everything. I'm telling you, this was a dream come true as far as an interview. So we're not talking about all of that this week, though. We're talking about plastic injection molding, the birth or the origin of the Rhino Land Raider, the origin of fine cast, and even how it got its name. And why did it take so long for Sisters of Battle to get plastic miniatures? So, all of that and more in this podcast. What have I been up to? Well, hmm, let me think for a second. I finished all of my Brutality Bestiary book, which I'm very excited about. I ordered my first copy, so it is coming in maybe Monday or Tuesday. I cannot wait to see this in hand. I am not a super big digital fan like PDFs and stuff. I like to physically hold a paper book in my hand. So um, I, I find scrolling on like a Kindle or an iPad or whatever, I find scrolling on that to be a pain. And I just, my eyes don't really like the size of the letters. And uh, I don't know. Oy vey. So the point is, is um, I got that finished. Very excited about that. And I did a Brutality Battle Report, which may be the last one in our narrative campaign with this warband. I'm asking people to essentially vote or make suggestions if they want to see this Collegium Carnus warband led by Miles to continue. Or um, we've had nine battle reports in this campaign, and we finally met the goal of five victories. So it's completely up to the viewers whether or not they want to see more of this group or just start over with a brand new group with a completely different scenario. And I'm totally fine with that. I own like 20 freaking warbands, all painted. So, um, what else have I been up to? I did not get to play Warhammer this week at the club because of work-related issues. But I did have just James over, and we played Age of Sigmar, and he played with his Mega Gargant and all of that. And he kicked my teeth in. Um... So it was it was pretty back and forth. My handgunners, I gotta tell you, 30 handgunners and 20 crossbowmen took out the Mega Gargant in one turn. Now, both of them don't have super long range. The handgunners are only 16 inches, which kind of sucks. But they were able to take him out in one turn. So he is fellable. 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 We felled him like a tree. And, um... The real issue with that is that um, his ogres, number one, I rolled garbage. I brought a battery of three different rockets, the um, rocket batteries for Ironweld Arsenal. And they shoot, with my Greywater Fastness City, they shoot 39 inches. And it's, what, three shots, uh, fives and threes, minus two D3 damage. And if you target all of one thing's shots at one target, it hits on fours. Well, I really did nothing to buff their shots, so time after time, my rocket batteries should have been really dealing damage, and if I did make two or three unsaved wounds, 
I do my D3 damage, and I roll a 1, and I roll a 2, and I roll another 1, and I don't think, like, I wounded him three times, several times, with these rocket batteries, and I don't think I ever rolled a total of more than 4 damage for 3 wounds. So, usually it's like a 1, a 1, and a 3, or something. And it's just, eh, it was pretty unfortunate. But, uh, I have... It has spurred me to paint a lot of Cities of Sigmar stuff. So I had a bunch of like halberdier uh, pieces that had broken off. So I glued those back and I finished an Amber Mage on a griffin that I had painted last winter, but never fully painted. Um, the griffin and all was done, but the basing wasn't and the caster wasn't. So that's all done. And um, it also spurred me to paint these rocket batteries. So I finally painted the whole crew and painted the rocket batteries of two of them out of three. And, um, what else? So I've, I've been painting quite a bit. I've got a lot of Shorehammer stuff going on right now that I've obviously have narrative, uh, not narrative, um, clerical stuff to do. So other than that, I think that is it. And I'm going to stop rambling, but I've had a quite productive week. I got a bunch of city stuff painted and I'm excited now, randomly after I get all the city stuff painted, I'm kind of eyeing my Sylvaneth in the corner. I'm like, you know what? I think I might paint some Sylvaneth. I don't know. You know what? Hobby ADD is kind of a problem, and people complain about it. But on the other hand, follow your bliss. This is one of the few things in your entire life that really does not matter what you do. If you don't want to paint your models, don't paint your models. If you do, do it. If you want to paint one Dryad and then one Handgunner, then by all means, follow your bliss. This should be the one really wholesome relaxing outlet for you to just do whatever the heck you want and that's that so i painted some rocket batteries this week you know what might bust some dryads out and paint them you can't judge me let's open the tesseract mailbox hey this is the part of the show where we read fan mail from one of our listeners or one of my readers or one of our players of brutality this week we have Grendel, who is a dear, dear friend of mine and a supporter of ours on Patreon. And he writes, hey, Pimpcron. Oh, this was uh, Pimpcron at gmail.com, by the way. You can also find me at facebook.com slash Pimpcron. Hey, Pimpcron. Our gaming group has this dilemma come up recently, and I would like to... <laughs> I don't know why I said it that way. I would like to get your take on it. So it is time for what would Pimpcron do, or WWPD for short. Our group is pretty laid back. We don't tend to have the latest hardcore list or even the most recent rules. No one used L Lord of Wars, and when playing against an unfamiliar army, we assume our opponent is telling us the truth when it comes to rules. Enter the new guy. Not only does he play Lords of War, he brings knights to the table. During these games, he keeps pulling gotcha moments. Armagers falling back and still shooting and charging, using a bunch of command points when he shouldn't have very many. Units getting healed with the explanation, it is a Mechanicus rule, and so on and so forth. So far, our players have just accepted his explanation, then asked later about his rules. While this keeps the game civil, it gives us sour tastes afterwards. So, my glorious leader, WWPD. Well, as you know, Grendel, I greatly appreciate you writing in. And uh, I actually had a couple questions about what you just said, though. So I emailed you back, and this is what I said. Thanks for the email. Before I respond, I do have one question. Is he legally using the rules, or is he making stuff up? 
It's one thing to purposely not tell your opponents about something. It's another thing entirely when you're just making stuff up or twisting the rules the way they're not intended. And Grendel wrote me back and said, From what I understand, he is using rules that are partially right. For example, the rule for falling back and charging is a titanic rule the big knights have. He was using it on the armagers that are not titanic. He was giving knights, uh, giving knights an invol in melee when knights only get an invol from shooting. He took a super heavy detachment, which can give you your command points back, except when it is only using armagers. These all could be him making assumptions and not fully reading rules, or it could be him gaming the system and outright cheating. I guess the question is when someone is using something you're not familiar with, do you A, make them show you each rule, or, <laughs> this is funny, because Grendel actually said do you A, and then his second option is or two. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess the question is, when someone is using something you're not familiar with, do you A, make them show you each rule, or 2, do... <laughs> that tickles me far too much that it should, um, or 2, do you just let them run over you and check later on, or Gamma, <laughs> smash all these toys and tell them this town ain't big enough for the two of you. Well... Number one, thank you for coming to me because you know what? I am I have several sores on my body that just ooze opinions. Like I'm I am chalk full. I've had I've had opinion inflammation for years. And um I just I have so much so much opinion. So I have so much love to give in the form of opinions, Grendel. So do I make them show me each rule? Do I let them run all over me and check later? Or do I smash the toys and tell them this town ain't big enough for the two of you? So the way you describe it when I ask for clarification is that he is actually bending rules to be his benefit. Now, I could see how you say that he may just be a little confused because there are, you know, a lot of people that don't really fully read the rules. So I could see that as being a situation where he goes, oh, well, I have an all-knights army, and Imperial Knights can fall back and shoot, so obviously my armagers can, and he doesn't look it up. So one thing I would be interested to know is how long he's been playing. Is he a fairly long, you know, has he been playing for 10 years or one year or six months or a week? It really does matter. If he's been playing for 10 years, I would have far less sympathy for him. Um, if he's even been playing maybe six months, at the frequency a lot of people get to actually play a game, Six months might only mean he's gotten six games in. So, you know, I would be more lenient on that. Certainly less than six months, I would be more lenient on. But what I would do personally, and I've, I've ran into this several times, is I punch him in the fucking face. No, I'm kidding. Um, I've ran into this several times. And what I usually do is, I, I you should know probably, Grendel, from, from meeting me occasionally, um... I, the, the thing that I am phobic about is being rude. I was raised to never be rude to anybody. Someone's got to seriously piss me off for me to be socially rude to somebody. So if I see you cheating or whatever, I'm going to be like, oh, it, it does that? Wow, that's really cool. And I will let them do it. And then I'll say a couple minutes later, hey, do you mind if I like look through your rule book? Because that, that seems like a really cool army. And they'll say, oh, sure, usually. And they're not on that I'm, you know, catching on to them. And I'm going to go ahead and look up that rule. And then I'm going to go, oh, oh, you know what? Um, I'm not I'm not seeing it here where it says that you can retreat and fall back with armagers. Is that like 
an army-wide rule or what is that? And I will slowly just essentially play dumb. Because if you come at it all aggressive, like, you know, and go, well, they can't do this, then he's going to get pissed off and you're pissed off. And that does not solve anything. And you might actually lose the person in your gaming group. Now, we have had some people that were real tryhards when they first joined our gaming group. And after a couple times of us, like, nonchalantly pointing stuff out or going, here's another thing, too. Because Just James and I pretty much play all the armies, just about... I can usually do... Here's one of my favorite moves. Somebody goes, oh yeah, my armagers retreat and still shoot or whatever. And I go, oh really? Oh, that's cool. And I'll say from across the room, hey, just James, I had no idea armagers could retreat and still shoot. That is really cool. And then just James will go, no, they can't. And I'll go, yeah, they can. He just said they can. <laughs> just James will go, uh, no, they don't. And then I'm like, oh, well, you know, opponent, uh, are you sure that this is what's going on? And then we'll take a look at the rules and, oh, guess what? Armagers don't do that. Oh, man. Sorry. I didn't know. And I'm pretty good at playing dumb. Like, I play dumb, but I'm, you know, I got a plan. And uh, it's it's especially if some other player in the room, you know, just act like it's conversation. Oh, dude, that is awesome. I had no idea. I might think about getting a knight army. And then the other person who has no stake in the game. See, the person who is twisting the rules in order to win it could accuse you of being a baby or being a poor sport or whatever. But if you authentically play it off and you truly do seem like you're just completely innocent, you've got no idea, then that is a way to go because then the person from across the room has nothing to lose or gain from correcting him, you know, and they're just going to tell you the truth. Now, occasionally someone will start pissing me off. Um, one thing that really triggers me is when people measure proper, uh, improperly, like, um, you know, their six inch movement on their troops is always somehow eight or nine inch movement. And that starts pissing me off real quick. So, um, if we start doing it, cause that's, there's no excuse for that. If you're a half inch off, whatever, maybe even if you're an inch off, whatever, but if you're two or three inches off, you're intentionally doing that. And to do it one time is one thing to do it. Every time you move every single unit, oh, it moves 12 inches. Let me move it 14. No, that's not the way this game works. Um, or the, the whole moving the tape measure thing, just a little bit to make sure they're in range. But then by the time you've moved the tape measure, there it's still proving that you're out of range but you've moved the tip of it to make it look you know that stuff i have no tolerance for so i mean i get rules wrong all the time i'm a self-proclaimed lazy rules reader and half the time or more often than not i get my own rules wrong and that's to my own detriment so i'm never in the camp of twisting rules to my benefit if i accidentally get a rule wrong then it's just because you know i don't really care about the rules but uh, I'm positive that you can pull this off, Grendel. I'm positive that you can just nonchalantly, you know, act interested in the army, act like, whoa, this um, this seems really cool. Armagers can do that, and but don't do it in a questioning way. Just be like a oh wow sort of thing. And um, of course, if you do play Imperial Knights, I think you do have some Armagers, Grendel. I'm not positive if you do or not, but um. I know you've got Admex. I don't know if you've got Armagers, but if you do have Armagers, you'll be like, really? They do do that? 
And he'll go, yeah. And you'll be like, oh, can I see that? Because at least then you've got a basis. It's not just because you're quote unquote losing or you're a quote unquote bad sport. It's because you should also have the same base of knowledge that he does because you also play that army. And then, well, wait a second. I didn't think that was the way that is. Um, like I said, if people start pissing me off, I will be much... I have had some heated games where people are cheating. And I'm just going to be like, really? That's that's what that rule says. And he'll say, yeah. And I'll say, can I see that? And then I will be more aggressive about it because by that time they've pissed me off. But generally you get more um, flies with honey than you do whatever. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure I messed up that metaphor. But just be casual about it. Just be nonchalant and act stupid and um, play dumb. And you're probably not going to upset him. And then it's almost like you both discovered, oh, wow, oh, that rule, you had it wrong. Oh, well, you know, I didn't know either, haha. <laughs> and then then you're pretty golden. But if you keep calling him out in nonchalant, non-confrontational ways, or you can get a buddy like just James from across the room to go, no, it's not, then those are non-confrontational ways in order to get him to start curbing his... Um, activity because he will know that he can't get away with it anymore but if you guys just let it go constantly then okay that's a little different so I'm I guess to answer your question is I would not directly ask to read the rule unless he's pissed me off I'm going to subtly ask to read the rule the alternative that sounds like you've been doing is maybe ask to see the rule after the game which is fine but then you've already screwed up your game by trying to be just a little too lenient. And if you're starting to get whiffs of him intentionally doing this and not just being a poor comprehender of rules, if you get whiffs of that, then I would be I would start to get more aggressive with it because I've, I have no patience for that. This is a game, and if you've got such a small ego and such a small PP that you that you need to win this game by cheating, then you know what? It's it's not a it's not copacetic. All right, I've, I've rambled long enough about this. Bye. Want that or want that not? What's up, everybody? It's time for Want That or Want That Not with the Pimp Crown. And tonight, we have a lover's tale. We have a tale of the two trees. And we're actually going to be reviewing two things that are new releases from Games Workshop. One is not actually a new release. It's under new releases because they're temporarily reprinting it and it is in metal. The first one is the Tree Ent, or just Ent, from Lord of the Rings. It's on a 60mm base, which is a Dreadnought-sized base for 40k. And it is $40. And I don't... I, I hate to be hating on a slightly older model, but... Good God, this thing sucks. It is really, really ugly. It's a terrible sculpt, and it's really... I mean, it's obviously a tree, but it has no foliage, and it looks kind of like driftwood, or if you ever are near the beaches, a lot of like the scraggly old trees near the beaches, like in the marshy areas, it's just all twisted and dry, and there's no life to it at all. It's, I mean, it's got... It's got two legs and two arms, and it's walking, it's got a face, but there truly is no life to this. And the arms look weird, and there's pretty much nothing I can say about this that I like. It is $40, and it is a 100% want that not for me. Now, 60mm base, judging by the size of the base, it is a 
slightly large model. It seems to be taller than a Dreadnought, so that's, you know, I mean, okay. It's probably, the, to the top of its head, is about the height of a Dreadnought, and then it's got, like, branches and stuff sticking off it. But number one, it's a metal model, which nowadays I am not as big of a fan of. And you know what? I have no problem with metal models, but the problem I have with metal models is when they're like this. They've got a weird, twisty, long, bendy arm sticking one way, and then branches sticking another way. And, you know, gluing metal is a real bitch to begin with. And this is going to be a bunch of fiddly bits you're probably going to have to pin. You're probably going to have to use green stuff or whatever to fill gaps. It is just nothing, there is absolutely nothing appealing about this model. I hate to say that, GW, I apologize, but $40 for a metal miniature that is flimsy as crap, and I just, I don't think it has any any life to it. So that is 100% a want that not for me. Even if I was a Lord of the Rings fan, I would find some better looking tree end. Now... Let's switch gears for a minute and let's take a look at Tree Man for the Blood Bowl game. He is a new model. He's actually currently out of stock because he sold out immediately. And I have to say that this model of the Tree Man has a lot of character to it. My only thing I would say is that it may actually be too busy because I'm having a hard time exactly telling what it is. So where the tree and the ant, I'll just call it, the ant was long and tall and scraggly and just quite boring. This guy is sturdy, stocky, he's got big claws, he's got big beefy arms, he's got all these branches sticking off him with leaves. And then it gets a little weird, he's got like some sort of vines, I guess they're trying to make him a football helmet out of vines, these vines run across his face, and then he's got like pink tentacles, I guess they're supposed to be different types of vines. I don't know, of course they painted them pink, you can paint them what you want, but he's got some little creatures in his branches, and uh, one of my favorite of the little creatures is he can actually get a squirrel to sit in his branches, which is pretty darn adorable. He also has one of those little things that are hiding in the branches of Sylvaneth models, I don't know what they are, they're, they look almost like Nurglings, but I don't think they're Nurglings, and uh, he's also got someone's helmet stuck to one of his branches, and things like that. Um, if you actually look at one of the other variants, not the variant with the tentacles above the face mask, but if you look at the other variant of this tree man, where you can clearly actually see his tree face behind the uh, bars of his makeshift helmet that is vines. Now this tree man is only on a 40mm base, which is a terminator sized base, so he clearly is a little smaller than the Ent we just spoke about. He's $32 as the Ent is $40, and he's on a smaller base. But this guy is so much more interesting to look at. They give you at least one bird to put in his branches. They give you a squirrel to put in his branches. They give you a helmet, and they give you one of those little nurgling tree things. This guy is pretty interesting. I really like this. Matter of fact, um, they usually knock it out of the park with most of their Blood Bowl stuff. Like the Halloween team. Oh god, don't even get me started on the Halloween team. I'm in love with it. I love Halloween, I love pumpkins, I love the fall, and I love the undead. So that is way up my alley. And um, actually, I would review that, but I can't remember if we've already reviewed that on this podcast or not. But I'm getting off topic. This tree man is sheerly delightful. Now, like I said, if you use the tentacle version, he's a bit too busy for my liking. Unless you're painting things really high contrast colors, 
it's just like, what the hell is going on in this guy's face? He's got pink tentacles, he's got a green face mask, he's got, uh, it's just, the stock image, the very first stock image on their website is just far too busy for my liking. He's got horns, the other version of him just has the face mask, not the horns, not the tentacles above the face mask, and this looks way more up my alley, plus, good god, they give you a squirrel for crying out loud. If you've ever wanted a 28mm squirrel, now here is your chance, people, not to mention a bird and one of the nurgling things. So the squirrel is what really has me excited. $32, 40mm base, the tree man is chock full of character, and I absolutely want that for 32 the Ent, on the other hand, is completely soulless. I have no love for this thing. So, this is the tale of two lovers. One is super hot, and one is, like, ugly. And I don't know why they're together. I don't know how the Ent snagged the tree man. I don't, you know, sometimes you look at a couple and you're like, how did they get together? Well, apparently, they're, uh, the Ent must have other qualities we're unaware of, because the Ent is fugly. Alright, enough of this tree talk. Um, <laughs> this has been Tree Talk with the Pimpcron, and we will go to the next segment now. I want that not on the end, I want that on the tree man. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron. With the introduction of the plastic molding, um, what exactly, how did that change the development process for the models, the sculpting, you know, the, all of that? Did it change much at all, or...? Yeah, it's a completely different different um, technology. So uh, when you're making a metal miniature, the thing you sculpt is pretty much the same. It's all intents and purposes exactly the same physical size as the final metal thing. So the point about the white metal pr production process is that you're trying to um, produce a white metal casting that's an exact reproduction of that original metal that original putty master. Mm -hmm. So the, the point, the point of the process is to try and recreate the original master. Well, plastic production process is quite different, and it's quite different because the process of producing the cavity that the plastic is squeezed into, rather than the metal is poured into, the injection molding, liquid sort of molten plastic is squeezed into the into the steel tool at sort of quite a high pressure. So it's pushed into all of the cavity, so it faithfully records the surface detail. Well, that process actually requires the steel moulds to be incredibly robust. Um, and the machinery that, that clamps those moulds together, the injection moulds, halves together, is huge industrial hydraulic rams, and it's um, proper industrial stuff. That cavity if, if there's any snags on it if there's any little little bits of detail that um, that don't have perfectly filled in profile when that when the steel mold opens up to release plastic miniature and sort of the plastic casting and molding if there's anything that will catch that, that will hold the molding in the, in the steel tool mm -hmm. it destroys the process. You'd have to stop and rip it out by hand. And the whole point about the plastic tooling and what makes plastic tooling efficient and effective is that it just, it just every 20, 30 seconds, the mold closes, plastic is injected, the mold opens, the, the molding falls out, the mold closes, plastic is injected, the mold opens, ah. the molding. And every, 
every 20 seconds. And so because you need to work the tool to get to get your money back because it costs a lot to make that tool. So how do you make that casting? How do you make the, the hole in the tool? How do you make that the cavity? Well, you can't do it the same way that you do a metal miniature. The way that you make the, the cavity in a steel tool is you, you basically grind it out of the steel using a, a high-speed drill with a very, very finely rendered bit. And you start off with a relatively big bit. So you sort of um, you grind out of the rough shape. And then as you get to the finer detail, you use a finer and finer and finer bit until you've got a very tiny bit and you're basically grinding away still to make the detail now you can't do that with your eye you can't do that that's not sculpting process it's an engineering process and the in the olden days before high speed um milling machines controlled by computers the way you do that is using a um, device which basically translates movements from one place to another um, and it's called a pantograph machine which is basically so imagine that you've got a a drill attached to one end of a, a bracket and at the other end of the bracket you've got a pointer uh-huh. and if the pointer moves one inch this, this the drill moves one third of an inch oh my gosh okay so you, so you can imagine so then what you do is you have a an object which is usually a cast resin block with a, uh, a cavity in it of model that's been made in clay that's been washed out of that resin block so you've now got a cavity of a thing that was three times the size of the thing you're trying to, to make. And you're dragging the pointer over this uh, through this cavity. And as you make a movement in three dimensions, you can move it down through the cavity. The drill on the other end of the thing is moving at a ratio to that, usually one third. Wow. So what you, what you can do is you can translate the, a three-up sized object to the size you want it to be, because it's three times bigger, you make it a third of that size, so it becomes the right size. And it's using that, yes. And it takes a long time. It takes about a week to do each half of a tool that way. Um, it's very, very labour-intensive, a uh, very skilled job. And every Airfix kit or any Tamiya kit that you ever, any kind of plastic um, injection-moulded product that you've ever encountered up until around about the year 2000 would have been produced in a tool that had been made in that kind of way. Handmade, so, essentially. Effect- effectively, yeah. That's amazing. And the resin blocks basically are not very, very complicated technology. You just make a, you just need, to, you need a pattern, which is what you call them, a pattern that you can copy into the steel. And the pattern, usually a resin casting around the clay model. Now, some technologies use slightly different mechanisms. There are some kinds of cast tools where the objects you want to make are suitable to be made from a thing that's been cast rather than a thing that's been ground. Um, so you, there, so there are technologies to create the steel tools that don't involve pantography, but, but, but none of those methodologies work for small objects with lots of, with lots of detail on them, like miniatures. We tried um, to do cast tools um, casting in a beryllium copper alloy. It was a nightmare. It was a bloody nightmare, I'll tell you, because um, we couldn't make the masters sufficiently free of undercut and catches. So we cast models, even casting them into porcelain and casting the three or four stage casting process. We end up with these brilliant copper blocks. 
and we'd squeeze plastic into them and the plastic would be completely jammed, stuck into these cavities to the point where you'd have to use screwdrivers and blow torches to burn it yes. <laughs> and grind and, and uh Alan and Michael Perry and myself spent a whole day at this, at this tool makers one time gr- taking it in turns to grind to, to, to sort of polish these little brilliant copper inserts and trying trying to squeeze plastic into them that wouldn't stick and it it was a nightmare and we went back to and Brian and said yeah it's just not going to work we tried it that was in the in the mid eighties um, mm. in fact it was the model we were trying to making that cast tool was a thing we released as psychostyrene dwarf that's that's what we were doing but but the, but that model it, we didn't end up using the beryllium copper tool to produce that dwarf because it was such an irritatingly difficult process we just couldn't make it work but we'd already i think we might have already um planned to release psychostyrene i think we might have even had the blister cards made and everything <laughs> so um, so uh uh in the end, we gave up, threw these inserts away. I came up, it was Alan or Michael Perry, made a three-up clay of the Psycho-Starring Dwarf model, and um, and we just made, a tradi- made it the traditional way. Um, uh, because we were trying to find a way to make make use of this of the plastic technology, because we had access to it, um, which is a long, boring story. I'm going to, we just happened to know somebody in built a relationship with them and it was quite productive that, um, but it meant that we had this kind of opportunity that was hanging there all the time to say if you can find a way to clever ways to use plastics to supplement or replace the metal casting process then we knew that we could make money make more money that way we, the things that were standing in our way was the technology to make the plastic tools for miniatures was was very like I say very hard work, costly, mm-hmm. very very um, expensive, and the levels of detail that we could achieve were weren't spectacular. So we knew that the, the plastic miniatures really weren't as high a quality as the metal miniatures, and we thought, and as long as that was true, as long as the metal mouldings weren't as detailed and as artful as the metal miniatures, we knew that our customers wouldn't be very interested in them and that proved to be the case you know that a lot of people think back fondly to psychostyrenes and drastic plastic orcs and uh-huh. the, and the army sets and things like that and there's a lot of nostalgia atta- attached to those products but the reason for that i think is because the beginnings of what have become the most incredible um plastic miniatures and so they're almost like the the germ the the embryonic kind of uh, beginnings of that of of that process and because people at some point have joined that process you know um they've they've kind of lived with the ever increasing quality so they can look back at those and think well those were those were great they, those are the ones that got me into it or i remember those really well you know and i you know i've had loads of people over the years sort of say to me gosh i remember I remember that Warhammer Armies set and uh, I was always like, why you didn't make more of those? And it's like, because it cost a bloody fortune and we didn't sell it. <laughs> and as we needed to, to make it make sense. So It's funny because even 12 years ago when I got into it, um, even back then, as modern as that was relative to what you're talking about, even then metal models were known to have better quality detail than the plastic counterparts. And now, I mean, not so much anymore because the plastic is so high detail. But at that time, it was still a commonly known thing like, hey, the plastic still are just slightly lacking the detail that the metal models have. Yeah. And 
there's a point in the history of Games Workshop where it changed. Actually, it's kind of like 20 years ago now. There's a point where we started to um, deploy much more modern techniques of creating tooling. It's still quite expensive. It's still very big, big upfront cost to make a plastic tool, even today, even with the modern technologies they use. But the new way of doing it is basically digital sculpting and mm-hmm. digital tool design. The actual cavities, the little uh, the inserts are still made by the drill drilling out. It sounds incredible, doesn't it? But really? high-speed drill is still drilling out the shape, the hole into which the plastic is pushed. But that milling process is now not dicta- not someone with a pantograph. It's kind of slightly Heath, Heath Robinson-like device. It's mm-hmm. now done by... A computer-driven high-speed milling machine, like and a CNC machine. Yeah, and it's uh, they're most incredible. And Games Workshop has a secret room you can't go in. Um, even even most of the staff are allowed to go in it. Um, and it's just got like dozens of these machines. It's like something out of science fiction film. It's <laughs> got German German high-speed milling machines, and they're just constantly producing the teeming numbers of of inserts that you need to make the plastic tools. And the detail that they can achieve is is extraordinary. I mean, it is extraordinary. Um, the, the, in fact, they, the, it's possible for the machines to mill finer detail than is possible to cat to be moulded. The detail could be so fine, but you'd never mould it. So that because everything's designed virtually designed in, on a, in computers, all the set-up designers now use these. Waldo arms and a, and a sculpting with virtual clay in these virtual environments. Mm-hmm. The level of fealty to the original designs is, is extraordinary. So what you see on the screen, the guys now know exactly what, what that's going to reproduce like in the plastic tool. Um, and it's totally transformed the process. And also it's enabled the designers finally to be able to really exploit what you can do with plastics that you could never do with metal, metal casting. So large models, complex models, models with lots of, uh, what is known in the trade is negative space. So um, metal castings don't like holes in the models and big open spaces with, within the shapes because you can't mould it, you can't make, and so you'd have to make it in parts. And as you well aware, multi-part metal castings are, an absolute bitch to kind of assemble. <laughs> so, and, um, so there's a lot of stuff you can't do with metal. So metal miniatures have a certain kind of character and flavor to them. And for the longest time, our plastics miniatures were, were trying to reproduce that to some extent. The old way of making the tools kind of pushed us that way as well. But once you get into the, the virtual sculpting and the Sort of, um, CNC machines, CAD, CAM, and all the other tech. When you get into that world, suddenly all bets are off. You can do all, all kinds of amazing stuff with the with the designs. And some of the centerpiece Citadel miniatures these days, the plastic kits are just ex- extraordinary. They really are. They have Absolutely. features that you couldn't possibly do in, in any other material. That's the result of you know thirty or more years of, of research, development, hard work, and bloody mindedness to say, yeah, we're not happy. We want to keep pushing at it and pushing at it. So pushing the envelope, yeah. Um, I uh, I don't know. Did you work there when the monolith, the Necron monolith, first came out? I think it was early two thousands. Oh, um, yes. Wasn't that like a, a real uh, accomplishment to have such a massive plastic model? 
ironically, it was one of the easiest ones to do because it's um it was a very straightforward shape. Hmm. And um and it was quite basic in its surface detail. I mean, that was one of the things about about the plastics being able to do tanks in 40k. Like I said, we were always looking for how can we use plastics to get the best out of plastics that will you know give us an event, give us a product, give us something that people would really appreciate value and buy lots of. So the Rhino and the Land Raider kits were the result of our plastics manager at the time, a chap who owned the plastics company that we used, said to us, well, said to Brian, well, I could, we, you could make a tank, you know, you don't have to do all the clay masters and things. You can do it by getting a good drawing of the parts. You only need to design half of it because you can make your tank out of two mouldings. Huh. <laughs> so... So if, it's, if the front and the back are the same and the left and the right are the same, you only need like one. <laughs> um, and he said, and um, and you can do it just from a drawing. He said, because we can just make the, the the patterns can be just milled out in perspex. And it's a drawing. It's a technical drawing, which costs 300 quid. And we thought, <laughs> well, okay, we'll do that then. So that's how the Rhino came out. Was a, um, so it's, lit, it's literally why uh, the, old, the original Rhino was two mouldings of exactly the same thing. And yeah. Took the bits and you put them together and you got a rhino. Hey! Yeah, well, I remember uh, there was a door on the top and the door on the bottom, right? When you assemble it. Yeah, because the roof and the floor. Yeah. Are the same. <laughs> yeah. And and the, the the side units, the front and the, go both ways. So yeah, left one's just the right one facing the other direction. It's genius. Yeah. Look, genius. Really clever. The Land Raider was a bit more work, but same same similar principle. Um, and that's how those came about. The, the irony of it is that actually we did that for 40k, but it was it, 40k was massively underinvested when we released it because um, we, we didn't know it was going to turn into the thing it turned into. And anybody that tells you that we did is they're not being honest. <laughs> we had no idea. So the plastic Rhino Land Raider kits were that. Uh, to some extent, the Space Marines RTBO one were a bit of an experiment. They came along similar time to the skeleton kit and they were all these were all part of that same process of trying out seeing what we could do and uh-huh. how that would work and of course when it worked really well it was very irritating from a business point of view and a commercial point of view it was fantastic Ray, rock on but then it was like uh yeah now we've done that now can we do that again <laughs> <laughs> and actually making plastic models was was a lot more work for the for, for the designers than making metal masters so it ate great chunks of scheduling time. I have to say it was always a terrible trade-off of making plastic models or you know make one plastic master or make five metal ones. Were you there when they introduced fine cast? When they were starting to phase out all their metal models and introducing the resin ones? Oh yes, yes indeed, yes. So um, what was the thinking behind that? Was that a cost thing or what is it? Yes, absolutely. Here's the thing: white metal alloys are made of metals that are internationally traded commodities like tin and there's an international market for these things and that international market isn't about making metal miniatures it's about making industrial scales or whatever's yeah mobile phones whatever whatever it might be all through the back end of the last century and the beginning of this century, there's been an economy on the planet that's been absolutely growing at an unprecedented rate, and as China, and it was consuming vast amounts of, of those commodity metals. We had an ongoing constant issue with cost of the alloy, 
because it just it only ever went up. You know, as the Chinese economy started to grow um, and new technologies are starting to become more prevalent around the world, that then suddenly, you know, tin, you know, there's a run on tin or there's a run on and you know, on whatever it might be. But tin prices were the, were the key. And even if the prices went down, we weren't in the market of speculating on commodities. That's not the business. The business yeah. is making, making miniatures and selling them and interesting games to play with them and so on and so forth. So you're always faced with this ever, ever increasing cost. We had a reputation, and this still is a reputation, the games workshop being expensive, rightly so, because the fantastic amount of effort and work that goes into it, the skill and the precision of the miniatures is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. I will not, you know, I will not dispute that. I, we always pushed for the prices to be high. We tried to achieve better and better products. It's the fundament of the, of the brand offer, getting them better and better. So, I was never embarrassed by the pricing, and it was deliberately so. As we were, we wanted to never have to compromise on any of the value we put into the models. We didn't want to sacrifice any of those to get like cheap pricing. But there was a driver behind that as well, which was that you know if the if the raw material costs are constantly increasing, or you have no control over them, and uh, you might go, oh, this year's been great. We've only seen a modest 0.3 percent rise in the price of tin. <laughs> But the next year, there's a 30% rise in the cost of tin. And then you go, oh, bugger, suddenly we've got all our, all our margins disappeared. So we, we were constantly a hostage to the, to the price of the white metal. Whereas with something like a plastic kit, the plastic raw material cost is, an, is a really tiny, a diminishingly small. Yeah. After the cost of making the tool, the biggest cost of a plastic miniature it's the cycle time. It's the how long does it take for the mould to close, squeeze it full of plastic, open up and drop your frame out. The, the material cost is a relatively small portion of the overall cost. So, and then we had um, growing experience with, with resin miniatures. Um, you know, Forgewood was doing very well. We've been outsourcing a lot of that. We brought the moulding and casting of resins in-house. So that used to be outsourced in the early years of Forgewood. We removed all that internally and built a resin shop inside of Games Workshop. Some of the guys there thought, well, if we can spin cast these things in resin, why can't we spin cast these other things in resin too? And so they started experimenting with spin casting in resin and they were getting mixed results with that. And then they, but they kept working and working away at it. And at that point, I wasn't part of the factory management, but I had a consultant kind of advisory responsibility. I would try and keep a relationship with the guys there because as far as I was concerned, Games Workshop was really a factory with a sales outlet. One day, the guys came to me and they said, Alan, we think we've cracked it. Here's some examples. And they showed me these amazing resin castings. And I'm, I asked them tons of questions and they kept giving me all the right answers and then they and um, they set up projects and they set up trials and monitored them all. And the results were all fantastic and it looked really great. And I'd been shown fast amounts of like awesome, awesome research and development. And, and the miniatures were amazing. You know, the castings were really fabulous. Mm-hmm. And we built a plan and we said, and they said, well, what, we're going to go for it. And we'd had a run of really extraordinarily ridiculous hikes in, in metal prices as well but it wasn't that it was the quality of the, of the castings was so so fantastic i painted some of the models i enjoyed it um i converted you know mucked around with it i approached it as a, as a consumer as a customer I, I, I thought it was great i came up with a name 
So I said, what are we going to call it? And they went, oh, do we need to call it something? Said, oh, yeah. And I said, what are the things about it that you guys like? And they went, well, they're really finely cast, aren't they? They're like the most amazingly finely cast models ever done. I said, there you go, that's the name. Fine cast. And I went, all oh, right, okay, we'll call it that then. I, I've all, I always felt a little bit like, um, we didn't make many missteps, I have to say. Production over all the years at Games Workshop that I've worked in, which from 1980 through to 2016, in all of that time, we made very, very few missteps. Um, you know, we did try things that didn't work, like the brilliant copper cast tools that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we put an awful lot of effort into trying to make plastic models in different ways, none of which really worked out very well for us until we started doing this, the CNC and the virtual sculpting. But as a, on the whole, we had a, an impressive track record of, of getting it right. And then when we committed to things, doing it in the right way, and I think Finecast is one where we didn't get it right. We allowed ourselves to get into a position where I think we thought it was going to work better than it did. Simple truth is that actually all of the trials and all of the relatively small production runs we did to prove the process really didn't prepare us for trying to do it on a, you know, on the next level of full production runs of hundreds of designs. It just wasn't ready. So we, we probably. You know, if I could go back and do it again, I would have, I would say, yeah, we do this in stages. Let's do it with, let's do it with 50 codes to start with and mm-hmm. get it absolutely spot on. I think as a business, we got too excited by, by the opportunity to do some. We genuinely thought was, was a step up in quality and that, and it was, um, heartbreaking that we had so many problems with the quality of the castings. It just, it was done with the very best of intentions and it was, it wasn't an attempt to do anything underhand or, or shifty or it was all everything, every stage. It was it was an honest, honest mistake, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You initially put out the Metal Sisters of Battle Army, like in the what was it, mid to early two thousand, something like that? Yes, probably. Yes, it would be. Okay. So um a lot of people have wondered and, and same thing with me, what why it took them this long to come out with Plastic Sisters of Battle. Was it that the old army didn't sell super well or you know, what was what was the reason? I'm sure there's a business reason for it. You've got to be sure that the things that your program of releases that you're setting up to be released in a year's time, in two years' time, are are gonna deliver the commercial goals of the of the business. So you st- you have certain building blocks, you put them in, the big game releases, the relaunches of your of 40k Warhammer, all that stuff. You build all that stuff in. And then you look at what your what the rest of the release pattern is going to be. And then you can't go, okay, our 40k releases this year are going to be small, relatively unpopular army from the past in month one, in month three, some other third rank selling army. Oh, in month five. Now, people get offended, customers get offended because for them, their army their collection is is the best one. They've made a personal, very heartfelt choice, very emotional choice in some cases about their collecting of an army. And for them, that's those are the best models in the world. But the reality, the cold-hearted commercial reality, is that not all armies are made equal in the eyes of in the eyes of Mammon. So, you know, some things just sell better than others. And Sisters of Battle, Gene Steeler Cult hybrids, squats. Mm. <laughs> Uh, and there, and, and there are others, Chaos Dwarves, unfortunately, you know, Chaos mm-hmm. there, there are just armies that, no matter all our best efforts, you know, they, at the time, and individually, and they're, 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 and they share all the qualities. I mean, Sisters of Battle, the metal range was, 
designed by Jess Goodwin. They're fantastic models. There's nothing wrong with the, the, the designs. They were brilliant. But we didn't exactly sell vast quantity. We didn't sell enough of them to make to make you kind of go, wow, we must get those into plastic as soon as we can. Yeah, like you said, but, your your time and your facility is a limited resource. So you have to go yeah. with whatever is going to make you the most money or at least an acceptable amount, <laughs> not yeah. not the undersellers. Yeah, and and there's there's a there's a great deal of um, mythology and misunderstanding, just plain wrong understanding, I suppose, in eyes of the customer about the decisions that Games Workshop made made and makes about its product release schedule. So the classic one is that, uh, and I find this extraordinarily amusing, is that we'll get Space Marines are only popular because Games Workshop. Um, they're the poster boy for Games Workshop, and so Games Workshop puts all this effort into into making loads of space rooms all the time and promoting them all the time. So it's no wonder they're popular. And you kind of go, you know, it's the other way around. Games Workshop wouldn't make and sell one bloody space room if people didn't buy them in their in vast quantities. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, Games Workshop honestly is guided by the commercial realities. They make something if it sells like, or we used to say if it sells like hotcakes. They'll make some more, you're guaranteed. But if it sells, uh, if it doesn't sell very well at all, you won't see it again. And if it sells in the sort of middle rank, then it's a slight issue because, you know, it's just going to go into a cycle of a mix of things that you want to get around to at some. That's just, it's literally just the way it works. It's about sales performance. And honestly, if Games Workshop promotes something, it can promote it as much as, as as it possibly could. If it doesn't strike a chord with the customers, if the fans, if the enthusiasts for Warhammer or 40k, whatever, don't get it, they, they're not going to buy it. No matter how many times we put it on the front of White Dwarf or do whatever, this is it just don't work that way. So Space Marines are enduringly popular. There's no limit to how many Space Marines Games Workshop can produce and will continue to <laughs> Because they're just enduringly popular, they are. And Tyranids aren't quite as popular. 